Dotnet Rocks episode 600, recorded live Friday, October 8th, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, by Haystack, and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now here's Carl and Richard. Mr. Campbell. Mr. Franklin. How do you do, sir? I'm well, and you? We have arrived at show 600, and like um, most of the hundred divisible shows that we've done, we're going to take a look back on the year yeah. and um, some of the more, I think, important messages and some of the sillier messages. Well, just thinking about what's happened in the past hundred shows, or roughly the year, this was the year that launched .NET 4.0 and uh, Studio 2010. Yeah, and uh, along the way, um, we got a beta of IE9. Yeah. And uh, we had did a lot of stuff on the show. In particular, we did a big road trip. Drove across the country again. This year. And it was wildly successful. We talked to a lot of people. And uh, here's, Richard, tell everybody our strategy for bringing out the rock stars in, in uh, the road trip. Well, deliberately picking folks that weren't from around there. Yes. Right? That was the whole idea was, you know, Billy Hollis is well known in Nashville. He's spoken at Nashville a lot. That's home for him. So we took him to San Diego. Right. Where he didn't get seen quite as much. and But it, it, that made it fun, right? Was that people had, it was sort of unexpected. You never knew who you were going to get. We had right. some folks from Microsoft, some folks from, from externals. And, uh, you know, that's how it went. Yeah. And that was a, a very funny and poignant show. So I think maybe we should start with that. This is uh, an excerpt from Billy Hollis talking live in San Diego, originally published uh, April 22nd, 2010, show 545, Billy Hollis. So I have this ongoing interesting relationship with like the patterns and practices group at Microsoft. Oh, yeah. And they're really focused on that enterprise stuff, and that's their mission. And so they, mm-hmm. they kind of but, – but I have reservations sometimes about what they do. I was I was listening to a patterns and practices guy talking. Oh, this was probably about two years ago. He was talking about pair programming. Oh yeah, which which I think is pretty interesting. Having somebody and, two guys, one keyboard. Yeah, you know. and my partner's kind of like Ferrante and Teicher, you know? <laughs> yeah, or Penn and Teller. You know, yeah, exactly. So uh, these are uh, George and Ira. Uh, my own and my own partner and I kind of oh, get Richard. together. <laughs> Richard, <laughs> Carl, there you Carl go. <laughs> so I think it's pretty interesting. And of course, there's the economist in me going, that's good, but is it worth twice as much yeah. as one of the guys working on it? Have is, you doubled their product? You know, are they, they've only got one keeper between them. Are yeah. they actually still generating as much code? Are as they, they generating as much value? Not okay. necessarily Not as much okay. code, I'm with you. as much value. Yeah. And they might be. Depending on be. circumstances and the people, they might be. Mm-hmm. I've so seen he, it. I've seen it work. I've really seen it work. Well. And, and I'm sure it works for some and probably doesn't work for others. Sure. So this guy's there and, and he talks about that. Then in his next session, he's talking about test-driven development. And he says he writes three lines of testing code for every line of production code. And I'm thinking now that's... That's a lot of code. That's a lot of code, man. Yeah. And I'm I'm thinking code addict time here, isn't it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so he finished. And then he says... Oh, and my, he's talking about testing to get that code right, how important right. it all is. And, and, you know, there are situations in which all this is needed if you're sending rovers to Mars or whatever. Right. 
But he's talking about kind of routine business development, or at least that's what I thought. Building credit. Right. And and so uh, he says, now, my preferred ratio of testers to developers is two testers to one developer. Okay. Now, I think it's more usually the other way. Right. One tester to two developers. is. But he says, I prefer... That ratio of two. So, and given my, a pair of programmers, you're saying not just one tester, but, but four, four testers. Yes. So, my response to that was, I prefer to have two blonde supermodels in my bed every night. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, reality is not constructed to make that possible. And so it doesn't happen. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that in the typical enterprise software development project with the typical budget, you're never going to get that level of testers. And so that was, you know, I, I, I hear that sort of thing and I know it's well-meaning. I know that people are trying to improve the quality and make things better. But I'm, I'm afraid that some of that focus on the huge projects kind of loses touch. And, uh, and, and I, I, I kind of got into a... A little bit of a contest of 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 uh, what would you say contest of priorities, contest of viewpoints. Yes, there. Yeah, because you know, from my from a, <laughs> let's look, first look at it from a business guy's perspective. Yeah. So you've now, as far as he's concerned, a pair of programmers just doing what one guy did before. Right. He doesn't. He's not thinking in terms of doubling value. And then you said three times you're writing four times as much code, three lines. Right. So in order to get that given block of. Uh, given value. The, the amount of code that's going to get written and the amount of value, yeah. you know, that getting that task written, you're going to take four times longer because you got to write all that task code. Right. And then you've got all those extra testers lying around. Right. I once kind of ran through the math and it was like 12, from a business guy's perspective, it's 12 times the resources to get the same unit of work done. Now, that's not really true, is it? No. But it looks like that. It does. When you do the math the that way. Guy. Yeah. That's when it. you do, because they're not, as we said before, it's all magic to them anyway. Yeah. So they just they kind of fall back on whatever they learned for the MBA, and that's that's kind of the way they would do it. So I mean, I finally ran out of ways to express it, ex- except to say that, you know, gosh, I do a lot of work on my own. I have a great a fellow named Gary Bailey, who's my partner, mm-hmm. who helps me, who, who is just a superb developer. The two of us kind of pretty much work together. We team up when we need to, but we we do quite a bit of work on our own. And I don't I don't understand what it's like to live in that world. And I'm thinking, you know, if you've got to have somebody looking over your shoulder with every line of code you write, and you must write three lines of testing code for every line of production code to make sure you get it right, and you must have four testers testing everything that you do, then you must suck as a coder. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... I don't know any other way to look at it. Go back to school. <laughs> yeah, you must really suck as a programmer. Mr. Hollis, and I'm avoiding calling him Reverend because I know he doesn't like it, but boy, is that guy funny. I, th- I think he kind of likes it. <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of fun on the road trip, and... Um, you know, part of it too is we didn't get just to talk to guys like Billy Hollis, but we got to talk to some Microsoft tech fellows too. Right. Well, then that was the fun part was most of the folks that were on the road trip were people we knew, right? Yeah. That have been on the show before. But one of the big wins we had on the tour was Brian Harry. 
Yes. And he's the lead for, for Team Foundation Server and the whole Team System suite and a whole bunch of – he's one of the tech fellows. There's only, what, 25 of them in the whole country. Right. And it happened to be that he lived nearby Duke University where we were doing that show in North mm-hmm. Carolina. Mm-hmm. So we were able to, to get him in. But, of course, he's also the guy behind uh, Visual Source Safe. And you couldn't resist poking him at that. No, no. You? And uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, in, and in hindsight – what was I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> let's roll that one. What was I thinking? I don't know. Well, let's roll it and find out. Uh, I've been at Microsoft about 15 years. Wow. Um, I did a couple of startups here in Raleigh uh, when I was young. And uh, one of them, uh, we built a product called SourceSafe. And that hey, was we a, heard of that. Yeah, a few people have heard of it. Yeah. Uh, it was acquired by Microsoft in 94, and I moved out to Redmond to do my duty and uh, stayed about eight years and then moved back here and was gratefully given the opportunity to open an office here. So we've got an office here in RTP, uh, about 70, 75 people. Wow. And we build components of Visual Studio. In fact, the load testing stuff that you're going to demo next, we built. Awesome. Yeah. So now I'm under a lot of pressure to actually get it right. <laughs> uh for a long time, Microsoft always kept everybody in Redmond. It's kind of amazing. I'm finding out bit by bit that now there's more regional offices. So yeah. everybody here in RTP works on, uh, on I hesitate to call it Team System now because it's got yeah. a new name, right? Yeah, it's now Visual Studio Application Lifecycle Management. Right. Yeah. We're, we're good at long names. Yeah. In fact, the, origin, the, the old Team System name, not many people know it, it was actually Microsoft, or actually I should say Team Foundation Server, which is what right. I worked on, was Microsoft Visual Studio... Uh, team system, team foundation server. Man. It just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, yeah I know. We're, we're good at that. And Names are our a, thing. Such a great acronym, too. It's sort of... <laughs> 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 but I want to jump back to SourceSafe yeah. because, uh, man, what can you say about SourceSafe with the guy who wrote it? <laughs> Anybody want to say anything to Brian about yeah. SourceSafe? That's a lot of hours, man. That's a lot of hours I spent working on SourceSafe yep. trying to untangle and it just did it. What happened? Six versions. I mean, it was great once, right? Yeah. Just, we, yeah. Know, we, got, we got to a point. Projects got so big. <laughs> did well, I say that out loud? Jeez. Hey, it's fine. Did I mention, Brian, we have editors? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, when I talk about SourceSafe, I always like to remind people of context. Uh, we built SourceSafe in 1992. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the web browser uh, didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, the internet barely existed yeah, in, um, in universities and that's it yeah right. client server computing really didn't exist novell was the dominant uh server uh company no kidding um and uh we built it uh for you know relatively small modest sized teams of modest complexity it was revolutionary for 1992 yeah, you yeah. think about what existed uh you had rcs secs um uh, a couple derivatives of RCS. You had PVCS, a bunch of very cryptic command line tools. Mm. The vast majority of developers did not use any kind of source code control yes. system. They right. passed floppy disks around yep. to transfer their source. They didn't have email, most of them. Um, it was revolutionary in the sense that it made version control approachable by everybody. So as much as I may have teased him there, he really did have a gracious answer. He, to me... In- 
absolutely epitomizes the the technical fellow role at Microsoft. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and he's right. I mean, those were different times, and it's very easy for us to sit back here after we've got so many great tools and say, you know, what was up with that? But and we only remember the end of of SourceSafe that it sort of outlived its usefulness, right? Uh, where many, many years it was the de facto standard, the thing that everybody wanted to use. Anyway, I was wildly impressed with him. He's quite an amazing man. Yep, I agree. And uh, we, uh, during the last week of the road trip, we started off our eastern leg in Boston, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, actually, at the Nerd Center. Yes, what a great building that was. Oh, unbelievable building. So this was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's right around the corner from Harvard University. Microsoft has a wonderful uh, new building there, relatively new. We originally published this show 560 on May 20th, 2010. And this was with a, uh, an F-sharp panel. It included Talbot Crowell and uh, Rick Meinrich and Richard Hale Shaw. And these guys are all... Uh, working with F Sharp and, and uh, promoting using functional programming in .NET. We posed them a question um, that I felt we never really got a good answer for from in our other F Sharp uh, shows, which is, where does F Sharp fit in a line of business app? So I've asked every time we've done a show on F Sharp, I've asked this question. You know, I'm Joe Developer. I'm representing Joe Developer out there, and you guys know who you are. And we're writing line of business applications, right? And people are talking about F Sharp. And I think, okay, well, that'd be cool for doing math libraries. But, you know, this is my stereotype in my head. Convince me to use this in a line of business application. Um, Amanda Locker and Ted Neward said, yes, definitely. Um, some other people we talked to said, mm, probably not. You probably write things that need to be functional in little DLLs and then call those from your C sharp or VB net code or whatever. What is, what are each, let's at, let each of you answer this question. What is your take on line of business applications with F sharp? Um, well, I definitely think that there's a, a different skill set that's associated with F sharp. So, um, it's a learning curve, uh, switching from, uh, imperative programming and object oriented programming over to functional programming. Um, but as, uh, functional programming gets, becomes more popular. And, and it, by the way, it's been around a lot longer than object oriented programming. Yes. But as it becomes more popular, there'll be a larger resource base um, showing up in the future. Uh, currently, it's not not that easy to find talented uh, F sharp programmers. So, so um, th that would be one consideration. The other consideration is there may be core like think of when C plus plus is is more advantageous. C plus plus is still heavily used. Windows is written in C plus plus SQL Server. Mm. Um, so there may be aspects that you want to write in F sharp. And then leverage that from C sharp. So your bulk of your programmers could be writing in C sharp or VB, um, but different sort different of as areas. we use Link now because of its of its functionalness, exactly, you know, or whatever you call functionality or func whatever. I can't remember. What do you? What's the word? Functuosity. I like it. I like it. Right. So you get a little taste of Link, and they say, "Well, maybe. Uh, what if we had? You know, we have this object model or whatever. What if we could do X with it? Maybe we can give that to our F Sharp guy and see if he could figure it out." Yep. So you're along the line of write your line of business apps the way you always have, and when those things come up that functional programming language could solve easier. Yeah. 
Right. A little assembly in F sharp and plug it in. Exactly. Like when Amanda Locker went into uh, Grange Insurance, she was able to write basically a framework that the programmers could leverage um, and they could still write um, some of the calculations in C sharp. um, But the framework there, which they didn't really have to maintain um, uh, as diligently as as some of the other calculations, those calculations were actually um, done in C sharp. Um, but the parallel uh, framework was actually written in F-sharp. So uh, I would say definitely that the biggest problem with F-sharp right now is, is choosing an, in choosing a language is that um, not enough people know it. Although OCaml is a very similar language and there's quite a lot of financial programmers out there that already know OCaml. And it's, it's actually um, with some, some reworking, it can almost compile exactly the same. So it's, it's not that big of a deal in a lot of ways. And also consider that um, in, in terms of thinking about learning F-sharp, a lot of people who hire pick people that learn that are learning these kind of like more um, mind-bending and interesting languages sometimes because it shows that they're interested in, uh, in, yeah. in things that are complicated. And, and they, they may have... be able to bring a fresh perspective to a problem that your typical programmers don't have. Exactly. And, and, and in fact, writing in F-sharp has changed the way I write C-sharp a lot. And you see oh, this on the net. Like a uh, lot of immutable um, objects I make now with with just getters and after construction no no touching a lot of uh, you know link like stuff or I mean you can still k- kind of do pipelining by like dot 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 just passing one thing into the next and using extension methods all over the place so um, you can actually write a lot of the constructs um, that you can operate on a list in F sharp very easily in C sharp so I'm just just using extension methods so that you can provide mutable interfaces to immutable uh, data structures? Is that what More you're like about? immutable functions on mutable data structures. Okay. Richard. <laughs> Who? You're on. Thanks. Line of business I, apps. I think, um, I think th- I, I agree with those points, but I would add that um, I see F-sharp as perhaps the C-sharp, the, um, the thinking C-sharp developer's best friend. Hmm. Now, there are a lot of people who are not thinking C-sharp developers, but there are a lot of people who don't think anyway, and it doesn't matter whether they program or not, right? Um, and the reason why is, if you, if you look at the history of the framework, to me, the big win over the technologies that preceded it has been uh, its ability to let the developer introduce his or her own abstractions that represent operations and data um, that they're working with every day in their applications. The framework itself has a lot of these abstractions, but you can easily extend them or add your own. Uh, with the advent of, of generics and link, that just went through the roof. Um, F-sharp, to me, adds a whole new set of abstractions or new ways of creating those abstractions. And I think of it as the best tool for um, extra tool in the toolbox for a C-sharp developer working in what we used to call the middle tier. They're right. doing the business logic. There are certain types of operations. It's not just number crunching, but I think even um, uh, text processing or data uh, data processing when you're thinking of, of, of manipulating and working with data in unusual ways. So the true middle tier, not the stuff that goes and talks to your entity framework models or all that stuff. But when you have that data, you're working with those data constructs and you're performing logic on it. Yeah. yeah. In other words, if I've got a whole bunch of C-sharp code that is the connecting glue between a lot of different layers, mm. some of the implementation of that material is is going to be best done in F-sharp 
in my opinion. Yeah, the, the look of an app in this sort of hybrid model is very challenging to deal with, too. It's not like you're going to have an F-sharp library and a, a C-sharp app. You're going to end up with smatterings all over. Yes. It just, to me, sounds like, you know, we've been there before. This mixed language model is yeah. very challenging to deal with. Yeah, but I don't think this is the same uh, deal because I do think that the, um, that the feel, the flavor, if you will, of F-sharp is closer in spirit to what a C-sharp developer is trying to do at certain points. I'm not saying every single time, but uh, I've seen a lot of cases where customers are taking C-sharp and they are building a set of uh, operations where they want to pipe data from one to the next mm -hmm. and perform various transformations. And, and Link all of a sudden coming along made that a lot easier. But in some respects, you wouldn't have even needed Link if you'd had F-sharp, and that means that there are probably still a lot of operations where going back and rethinking those problems, I wouldn't necessarily jump to, to using Link to, to solve those problems. In, in many cases, I'm not saying you throw away Link. It's great. I love it. Um, but it becomes another way to extend your ability to solve certain types of problems uh, in in the uh, the business logic itself when you're really doing the real work. And I'm not talking about the, the pretty stuff that somebody sees on screen. The customers are going to tell you they want the pretty stuff on screen. In my opinion, customers ultimately want results. And they would go to plain text screens if it produced the results in a viable way. We love all the glitter and, and goo and the pretty stuff and all that of user interfaces. But ultimately, if it's a pretty user interface and it doesn't do squat for you, you're going somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And this is another way to get that stuff built. So it's very, very clean, very efficient, and super easy to maintain. And that's, that is what we, we don't ever factor in is, is that the real cost of software is not the initial release. It's what you're going to do four releases down the road and you want to add 15 new features and you've got this minefield of stuff because somebody just threw a whole bunch of crap together. This makes it possible to write a lot of things without having to resort to the crap. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Code. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how'd you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where just code is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features just code offers and download a trial at telerik.com/justcode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Finally, we get some experts uh, who have definitively said that F-sharp should be used uh, throughout your application, but not to replace the tools that you're already using right. and the languages you're already using. And you know what I love about that show? That show was totally serendipitous. Absolutely. Right? When we were planning the road trip, we accidentally, you know, it turned out we were going to be in Boston the same time that the, all those F-sharp guys were going to be together to do their own event. Yep. 
And after having a conversation, we said, well, this would make such a great panel discussion. So it was actually an extra show. That's why we published it late. Yeah. But I think we captured a really great viewpoint on F-sharp there. Oh, it certainly did. And I think that, you know, anyone that was maybe scared off by, you know, the original zeal of F-sharp uh, enthusiasts really ought to take another look and listen to this because it's a really good perspective. As very, says. very reasonable perspective. Reasonable 560, perspective. show 560. Go back and listen again. Yeah. Now, um, we have a kind of a something that has never been published. Ooh, I love it. I want to show this. This came from our buddy Sarah Ford, who uh, captivated an audience at a tech ed talking about her crazy family. And we were having Mike Family's Crazier Than Your Family contests. Uh, over a few drinks. And didn't she win? Oh, yes. She won. <laughs> and I thought I was in the running because of my crazy mother. However, right. no way. So uh, it was so good that I asked her to, you know, learn how to use a microphone a little bit and read uh, a story about her crazy Uncle Jimmy and send it to me. And I would put it to music, you know, sort of like we did with Rory and uh, the smartest man in the world, or right. this American life, you know, that kind of style. And she did. So, Sarah, baby, this is for you. I have a phobia of plants. Yes, of plants. Green things that grow in pots. I never really knew I had this phobia until I decided to get rid of some plants I had in my house. I discovered that I'd rather have a root canal than to water these plants every day. I never really knew why plants stressed me out so much until a few years ago. On a trip back home to help my family rebuild from Hurricane Katrina, I decided to spend some time with family members who I rarely ever saw as a kid. We were telling some classic stories about the family over a game of cards. When my aunt mentions, do you remember when Jimmy had a garden? I freeze right in the middle of dealing out a hand. Uncle Jimmy had a garden. Wait a minute, I have a phobia of plants. The room goes silent. Before I share my story of the garden, I must pause to explain who Uncle Jimmy is. When I was seven years old, Uncle Jimmy moved into the shed behind my mom's house. He somehow got a waterbed in there through the triangular door. The waterbed would freeze in the wintertime. We had to run an extension cord from my mom's house to the shed so he could sleep on top of an electric blanket. Uncle Jimmy had a garden. I immediately reached for my phone and called my mom. Hey mom, was I alive when Uncle Jimmy had the garden near the house? I hear on the phone, oh lord, yes. And I was about three years old, right? Yes. And didn't you tell me that if I ever went near the garden, or even had the plants touch me, I could get killed? There's a very deep sigh on the phone. Yes. Thanks, Mom. 
That's all I needed to know. The table erupts into laughter, and now it's my aunt's turn to fill us in. She explains that Jimmy decided to run an experiment in his garden. He was going to shock the plants and vegetables into growth by running electric wires crisscross throughout the garden. I believe I may have seen Uncle Jimmy attempt to water the garden without first turning off the electricity, which would explain why it is so difficult for me to water plants. Okay, so Uncle Jimmy's the craziest uh, in-law or family member anybody's ever heard of. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, yeah. she goes on and on and on about this guy, and not just this guy, but, you know, her parents who were decided, and Uncle Jimmy, who decided to be nudists. <laughs> <laughs> Changing a light bulb. She's like seven and horrified, you know. Just yeah. the stories go on and on. Anyway, uh we also talked to Mark Miller and Karen Mangicotti in a kind of a half technical, half parenting kind of discussion. It was an unusual discussion. Another road trip uh, talk. I think this was in Virginia. Yeah. And uh, it kind of went all over the place, but people seemed to really enjoy it. It was, uh, it was actually really insightful into the passionate madness that is Mark Miller. Yeah. And, you know... It- what can you say? I mean, unless you've actually spent time with Karen and Mark and been in their house and seen how absolutely loving their family is, you really can't judge, you know, their, their, them as, uh, parents. And, you know, the, you listen to Mondays or something like that and you'd be horrified to let your kids anywhere near these people. <laughs> but, but what an unbelievably, incredibly strong, loving family they have. And, there, Mark was talking about how, you know, he helps out Spencer, their, uh, well, Karen's kid, with his uh, homework projects and does all sorts of great stuff with him. And, well, this story came out. I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, we were listening to Sarah Ford's Uncle Jimmy stories and stuff. And there's always, when you're, when you're a kid, when I was a kid, there was always some grown up that was a little crazy that I was always attracted to as a kid, you mm-hmm. know? And, and those are the kind of people that I wanted to hang around because they were the smart people, but they were eccentric. And I think there's a sort of a lack of those people today, uh, around anyway. Not, maybe not in New London, Connecticut, because let's face it, there's a lot of crazy there. There's a lot of crazy. But I mean, people, I think, are a little afraid to sort of step out of their their role. And, you know, with kids, especially, it's all like, oh, you know, Yeah, we find that a lot, actually. (laughs) We find that people think that we're a little crazy in the way. Well, you are, but you're the kind of crazy parents that I would have been hanging out at your house every day. Yeah, I think we... Well, your kids do. (laughs) (laughs) But we were the other night where we, we take... So my boy turned 12, and I know you're like, how do you have oh, a 12-year-old yeah, so boy? You couldn't possibly be that old, but I do. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for that. We knew, we, we, she knew that's <laughs> what you were thinking. We're, <laughs> we're out having dinner, and he's like, I don't want them to sing to me. And I'm like, I want them to sing to you. Come on. We've been doing this for 10 years. No. I want them to sing to you. No, I don't want them. And I'm like, fine, then we're going to sing to you. <laughs> and so it comes, and Miller and I start warming up. Make sure we get the whole restaurant's right. attention. Pro, they know, were like, they were like, we're singing happy really birthday loud. to Spencer. Yeah, Ooh, by the way, middle school. Go to Mystic Middle School. Mystic Grade. <laughs> he's in love with Jessica. 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 <laughs> <laughs> 
Jessica. No, I don't even know his reaction because he was under the Spencer's table. Under the table. <laughs> <laughs> under the table. But boo, the other girl, as you can imagine, was like, "That's us." Hello, thank you. She wasn't yeah. embarrassed at all. So. Yeah. And of course, it's also now that we've—I know their kids well enough to know—I can't imagine them being embarrassed. Like what it, how over the top things need to be. Oh yeah, because yeah, their kids, kids have are, no fear. They are wild kids. Like they like to have fun and they love to perform. Well, but they're also responsible kids, and they're smart, and you know they're engaged. They're completely right. engaged with the family. You don't see them brooding up in their rooms with their with their devices. You know, no. like a lot of kids do. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. All right, my friend. What's next? Well, uh, we did this little experiment, if you uh, remember, yes. called the .NET Rocks Live Weekend. I Oh, you know what I remember? That was a lot of work. Yes, it was a lot of work, but it gave us some time off, didn't it? Well, effectively, because <laughs> for three days, we recorded, what, 12 hours a day? Yeah. 30-something uh, shows. Tremendous conversations. Uh, not every one of them was, uh, a, was incredible, but, you know, some great ones as well. And the result, of course, was that we made a huge pile of shows that allowed us to, to take the summer off in a lot of ways and yeah. just publish those shows, plus a few other important things as they came along. Right. And, uh, I don't know, you've got some favorites? Well, um, Mary Jo Foley actually drove up for, or took the train up from New York City, which is only a couple hours from here, and came to the studio and she sat in with us for, a couple of shows afterwards, um, but she talked about things that were on her mind. And right. one thing that uh, came up was her secret desire for Apple products. <laughs> Let's roll that one. So we were talking uh, just a minute ago that you bought an iPad. No, no. Let's You're thinking of buying I'm an iPad. I'm thinking of buying an iPad. This is true. I am thinking about it. And... Here's why I'm thinking about it, and I'd okay. love you guys to talk me out of it. Okay. Oh. Um, so I'm, I've never bought Apple products, not an Apple fan. Now, is this on principle? It's on principle, and it's mostly because I hate the Apple fan base. Okay. They They're hate selling. me. It's their customers. They hate me. I hate them. It's not the company. It's the customers. Yes. <laughs> and I don't want to be part of that group. Ah. I, don't, I don't want to be one of them. Yes. But- I actually went into an Apple store last week. Really? For the first time in two years. And I hid my identity. I wore some dark sunglasses and <laughs> off. Because last time I was in an Apple store, I kind of got attacked because uh -oh. someone recognized me and they said, Are you one of those Microsoft people? Oh, nice. Wow. So um, I went in the Apple store in Soho and I checked out the iPad and I told the guy who came up to help me, I said, You know what? I'm a Windows user. And he said, Oh, I'm sorry. Nice. But I said, I like the iPad, and I really would like if Microsoft did this or one of their partners, but if they aren't going to do it, I mm. might have to buy an iPad. So what is it you like about the iPad? Okay, so what I like about the iPad is instant on, instant off. Okay. Really long battery life. Mm hmm And the form factor. The really thin. Thin, like you can put it in this giant purse that I have right here. Right, so it's also the actual dimension. The actual dimensions are somewhat unique. It's like a yes. nine-inch screen. Right. Okay, so th these are all relevant issues, and there's nothing quite like that. I mean, City, you look over at me. I have a motion computing tablet in front of me. Right, this is an LE seventeen hundred, which motion computing has now stopped making. Technically, this you could almost call this an iPad. It's a little bit bigger. It's an eleven-inch. It's way more expensive, but it is, and it's actually a PC. But the keyboard's detachable. It's just a screen. It's not touch. That's good. But you know, it's along the same sort of lines. Yeah. 
I, I went to Microsoft's open house that they had in New York on Tuesday. They had a consumer open house where they were showing all their latest and greatest PCs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I said to the guy there, I'm like, show me something I've never seen. Show me something like the iPad. And he's like, we've got nothing like the iPad. Right. This is their consumer open house for the holiday season. Yeah, so you think they'd have a better answer to that question. You kind of think they would. Yeah. That um, would be the time to have a better it answer It would to the be question. the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, man, it, it's killing me to say this. I'm not saying it for promotional reasons or because I want to chide them or anything but i'm actually thinking about buying an ipad why don't you i may um <laughs> <laughs> i i'm not going to talk you out of it i think it's a great machine yeah you carl's a fan of the iphone i'm almost in your camp per se i don't own any apple products of any kind although i will have to admit that i've just made i've made said a made a misstatement i owned exactly two ipods one was a gift and yeah. it actually has an engraving on the back thanking me for my service. Mm-hmm. The other one is in my car because it had an iPod interface. There was no other way for me to put music into my car. The interesting thing, of course, consequence of that is the experience of setting that iPod up made me hate <laughs> Apple more. Yes. <laughs> iTunes yeah. is like sticking a needle in your I know. eye. That's what I said to the uh, the clerk in the Apple store. I said, so I am I really want to buy an iPad, but I don't want to run iTunes ever. And he's like, yeah. oh, no, no. I think you're talking about the old iTunes. I said, no, I'm talking about the iTunes that runs on Windows 7. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a virus. It's kind still of like really horrible. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, every t- and every few days it asks me to update it and st- install additional things. It's always trying to get me to install Safari. It's always trying to get me to install Mobile Me. You know, it's, yeah, it's pretty awful. Like, it's badly behaved. Of course, I think there's plenty of other products that do that sort of thing, too. Hewlett yeah. Packard's been annoying me pretty well with their constant nagging about installs and updates for printers. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Can you imagine if Visual Studio behaved that way? Yeah, well, I keep thinking about real networks. They were sort of the pioneers in hideously behaved we'll software. We'll call it nagware. Yeah. Just annoyingware. Yeah, it's awful, and it's and it's a. I had it pop up again today. PDF reader, yeah, the Adobe PDF reader. Or, Terrible. Heaven forbid you actually have Java on your machine. It's constantly popping up, wanting patches too. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, um, as uh, after Mary Jo, your business partner and our good friend Kent Alstad came on the show, and he was talking a little bit about 
about Strange Loop um, and the device that you guys have built. We've talked about it a little bit on the show, but... Right, and he'd just gotten back from the Velocity Conference down in San Jose, which is a... It's all about performance tuning websites and, and that whole infrastructure, which is really fascinating, but there's, there's very little Microsoft content there. I've done mm. talks there where everybody was developing on the LAMP stack or something else. It rarely was, was there any Microsoft people there, but it's, yeah. that's starting to change too. But yeah, he'd just gotten back from that and we got him on the live weekend. And just, um, just a little, uh, a pre information here. The, uh, the device that he was talking about is AppScaler and it's a, a box that goes between your router and your web server or your firewall and your web server. And because it can watch the request stream and the response stream, it does things to optimize performance. And, uh, uh, well, anyway, we, we didn't talk too much about that in this clip coming up, but Mary Jo did ask him a question about his thoughts on IE9. Could I throw in a question? Absolutely. From the peanut gallery. I, I would love to hear what Kent thinks about IE9 and what Microsoft's done around the JavaScript. Uh, engine there, the Chakra engine. Is yeah. that what it's called, really? It the is. Chakra That's engine? the code name. Believe it or oh not. Oh my God, yoga has infected yes, our lives. It is. <laughs> oh come on, what's the matter? The chakras are older than that, right? This <laughs> is know. old school. It's, hin- it's Hindu. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Hindu faith stuff. Yeah. It's big deal. But yeah. I, I'm I'm curious if you really think they've done a whole lot there, or is it more bells and whistles? Like, is it uh, what are we everyday users going to see when we see IE9 as far as performance tuning? As far as I can see, you're going to see it be as good as Chrome or better. Um, I see that the, the speed, the JavaScript, compiled JavaScript execution time is at least comparable or better. Um, the, the use of the GPU is something that they're ahead of everybody on in terms of rendering and uh, rendering with HTML5. And for the most part, for us, they've caught up. IE8 was struggling. Uh, the JavaScript was noticeably slower. The JavaScript ex- execution was noticeably slower. Um, we had to do special things to get IE8 to be as fast as Firefox and uh, Chrome. And now with IE9, they've become the leader again. Um, and so our tests with uh, the new Chakra engine have been mind-boggling. It's, I mean, it's compiled JavaScript, and it seems to compile extremely quickly. You know, like uh, often in less than a second, you've got the the uh, uh, you've gone away from the interpreted to the the fully compiled version, and it really, yeah, I think they've made a real leap forward there. In fact, it, it uh, I was I went back to the office after talking to everybody. And one of the comments was, "Well, so they've caught up with everybody else." And um, I think that they've, in my opinion, done more than that. I think they've become the leader. Um, I expect that there's going to be lots of challengers. There's definitely a lot of competition in the area. But uh, I think the GPU stuff they've done is also really stunning. Yeah, would, one could argue that Microsoft's sitting on a pool of the best talent in terms of compilation and GPU utilization. The DirectX team defined GPUs for the world. And, uh, and then they've been building compilers for 30 years. So if the, any two things that can actually have a shot at actually leapfrogging people, it would be those technologies. 
But it definitely, it's a leapfrogging situation. This has, you know, IE8 and IE, IE is the browser we pay the most attention to because most people use it, and we were struggling to get the same experience out of it that we could get out of other browsers, and I feel like IE9 has pulled it right back. I, I think people are going to love it. I hope that we can get the adoption we need so that we can uh, see more people happier with their web experience. But I, I'm, I was really excited. I saw Jason Weber speak, and I thought he was an amazing speaker, uh, very articulate, and most of all, just he, the, the, guy, the Chrome, Mike Belshi and Jason Weber, I thought, were, were really stunning, st stunning at the, the show Chris. Like whose last name escapes me from Firefox also made a presentation, and I thought he was. I, I was just really blown away with where the browser guys are going. They are really pushing each other hard, and thankfully, um, IE8, which was behind in the race, is you know IE9 guys can hold their heads high. I think. So you know what's really impressive about that, Carl, is that that's Kent describing what IE9 was going to be like in like May. Yeah. And now we know with the beta out that all that stuff is true. The GPU is huge. The the eight JavaScript performance is amazing. Like he was completely right. Yeah. No wonder he's my business partner. He's so smart. Yep. I totally agree. One of our other good friends in the business is Lino Tadros. And Lino is like a funny sumo wrestler. <laughs> uh, I yes, just he can't. Is. That's a good description. Yeah, he's got a big voice and a huge smile and a big presence. He's got a heart of gold. And, of course, he's a brilliant software developer and uh, worked uh, at Borland with Anders Halsberg on Delphi. And, of course, uh, he came on the show uh, around April 1st. April 1st, 2010 is when this show 538 was aired. And uh, he told us some stories about what it's like to work with the one and only Anders Hausberg. So you and Anders uh, were pretty close back then, and you probably still are. Anders Hausberg. I was a fun boy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you guys like to play squash together, I remember. You tell me that story. Yeah. And, and also, probably the most interesting and funniest one was the whole, when he got the call from, you know, from Microsoft. Yeah, that was actually, uh, uh, that was pretty, uh, scary. I remember the day that actually ended was, um, we're going to leave, uh, uh, Borland. We usually, uh, we played squash, uh, in the squash court at, at Borland. And, uh, that usually upsets him very much because I'm much better than he is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is a, this is a funny story. Actually, I'm not a big guy. I mean, you guys know me. People will probably listen to this. Some of them will not know me. I'm an over 300 pound guy. So, right. and he's a very competitive person. So he doesn't like to lose in anything in life. So when he knew that I want to play him as well, she looked at me and he was like, no problem. <laughs> so the only problem that I didn't tell him is that when I was playing, um, in Egypt before I moved to the United States, I was actually a pretty good squash player um, in Egypt, and Egypt is the third best country in the world in squash. So after maybe 20 minutes on the court, and there's a lot of people outside watching, like uh, Danny Thorpe and Chuck Jeff, the old people that work for Microsoft now, they have been um, in tears on the floor cracking up, and I, I heard the worst words in Danish ever. Um, he was very upset that he was uh, in pretty bad shape, and I'm sure he's probably going to listen to this uh, in a couple of weeks and 
I'm probably not going to be allowed in uh, Microsoft <laughs> anymore, but that's cool. Yeah, the uh, the, the <laughs> he's going to have a chance to rebut. I mean, <laughs> he's coming yeah. on the show. <laughs> Yeah, so that's, speak that's carefully, Alino, because fun, yeah. Uh, yeah, he will get his say. He will. Well, <laughs> that'd be fun. Yeah. So what happened that day? He got a call from Bill? Yeah, I remember that, actually. Uh, Bill Gates actually was talking to him, and uh, um, I won't get into the details of the uh, of the money and all of this stuff that has been known uh, over the industry, but uh, it was very, very awkward. Uh, and we had to actually call each other and bring managers in. It's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> Bill Gates is on the phone with uh, with Andrew. So it was pretty scary. And I remember the day actually when we talked to our management team, uh, the board uh, convened that night at Bowen, and they actually made him a counter offer the year next day. And it was uh, it was known to everybody that he would actually stay because they were very aggressive on it because they didn't want to lose him. And I remember the next day, Bill Gates called again and. Uh, that was the last time I saw Anderson. <laughs> 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 um, no, it, it, this guy is just an, an amazing human being, and uh, um, probably the, the best programmer I've ever worked with in my life. And I worked with a lot of good ones. I've been very lucky, but uh, it's amazing. Um, whenever I used to find a bug, for instance, in the ActiveX framework for Delphi, and spend days couldn't find out how to fix it, I used to go to him and say, "Boss." We need your expertise in my desk to tell me what the heck is going on. And I remember he used to sit down in my CPU window looking at smooth AAX to EDX and all these things. And he goes uh, in like 2,000 of these lines in less than five minutes, and he finds it in assembly. And he says, oh, look, you know, uh, it's right there. You see this happening right there? And I'm looking at assembly code, and I'm looking at him, and I'm saying, like, yeah, that's what I thought, too. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm telling myself, like, man, I really need to go open up like a hot dog stand somewhere or whatever. <laughs> he definitely has that capability of letting people feel like, uh, good, but in the same time, like, this is not the job for me. <laughs> He's that good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anybody that can debug 2,000 lines of assembler in five minutes. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, and he used to actually, I remember once he came to the office and we were including the uh, the, the COM DLL from C++ into Delphi because we didn't want to write the whole thing from uh, from scratch. And the DLL, we had a name for it, it used to be called Bolero DLL from the C++. And we incorporated it into Delphi and it worked okay, not great. And he looked at it, he didn't like it, and he said, like, you know, put the stuff on a disk. And he went home to Palo Alto. And he came back two days later with a disk and told me, like, this is the new implementation for Comfort Delphi. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> he wrote the implementation of Comfort Delphi in two days, so they didn't like wow. the one in C++. So I'm like, okay, where is that hot dog stand again when you need one? <laughs> <laughs> so we had warned Lino that at that point we already had Anders Heilsberg scheduled on the show. So Anders was going to get to rebut Lino's commentary. Right. And, uh, and so, of course, we just had to set Anders. And, and the Anders show was amazing. But oh, yeah. here's what you don't know about Anders is he's actually a funny guy. He's a hilarious guy. He's hilarious. Yeah. And so, this is this funny clip when we confronted him about the Lino incident with Anders. So, we're coming down to the end of the show, Anders. And I just have the most important question that's been burning on my mind for an hour. Uh, who's a better squash player, you or Lino? Oh, Lino. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's amazing. I so so so. I mean, Lino, I think was he was like a junior. He was like world world rank rated as a, as a junior squash player, as far All as right. I know. And you wouldn't know it to look at him. No, no you, you would not. I I did have the opportunity to play with him once or twice, but we were like so <laughs> we were so mismatched. It was amazing. Here you have this this. This very big presence called Lino standing right in the middle of the squash court with telescopic <laughs> arms that can reach the far corners, you know, and I was running around like a like a scalded cockroach, you know, and I, I think if I if I got a single point, you know, it was only because he gave it to me, so <laughs> And you must have been saying to yourself as you're walking out of the court, oh, this is going to be fun. You know, oh, yeah. this will be oh, a no, piece of cake. Oh, no, no, I knew. I, 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 I knew already. I knew what I was getting into. Oh. <laughs> I'm the the scene because you have to see how big Lino is yeah. and how little Anders is. Yeah. It is really comical. Uh, I would kill for video of that. It must have been spectacular. But of course, uh, the show that we did five forty one with Anders Halsberg, we talked about so many things other than squash and 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 Lino. But uh, in particular, toward the end of the show, uh, you asked him for a little peek at what we can expect in C-sharp 5. So looking at the evolution of C-sharp, you, you mentioned this briefly, that the 1.0 was just the whole concept of managed coding in that going, and, and in 2.0 you introduced generics, and 3.0 you really made generics incredibly relevant to us in Link, mm -hmm. and there's lots of features in 4.0 now that sort of moved to the dynamic programming world. Right. What does 5.0 look like? <laughs> Well, if I knew exactly what it looked like, you know, I I, 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 I could tell you, but I don't. I mean, because we're we're it's still a work in progress. Um, sure. I I could tell you though that one of the things we're 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 working on is in is is this theme, and and every release has sort of had a theme, right? And, right. And in four, you could say the theme is dynamic, and then in three O it was link, and the theme for five O is compiler as a service. Is is how we're thinking about it. Nice. Huh. And um, and the way I talk about this is uh, is that you know the, the compilers that we have today, the VB, the C sharp compilers, but but really sort of a lot of other compilers as well for starting type languages are, in a sense, black boxes. You know, on 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 the one side you feed them source files, and out the other side come object files or assemblies. But what happens in the middle is kind of a mystery. It's a black box, right? There's a bunch of knowledge about the code that the compiler has, but it doesn't reveal it to you. Um, yeah. Yet, increasingly, the way we interact with our code is not conducive to that traditional worldview. Um, like, programmers in dynamic languages swear by their interactive prompts and their REPLs, right? Um, yet, there's nothing that says that a static, statically typed language couldn't have an interactive prompt, except you can't fit it into this old compiler architecture. You know, you got to have a different way of, of 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 being able to just feed a a line to the compiler at a time. Do, do, do you know what I'm saying? So, so, right. so source files that that traditional view doesn't quite work there. If if you want to embed snippets of code in a domain specific language like workflow or biztalk or whatever where you have little predicates that sit in xml attributes that you want to be able to evaluate that's another example of you don't have a source file to compile you just have a little snippet or a string that you want to get compiled here right if you're trying to to if you have an app 
that you want to make programmable, you know, and you want to host the programming language in your app. And, uh, you know, it's another example of where you may not have source files. Um, and conversely, you know, this notion that the compiler always produces an object or an object file or an assembly as the output is, is not necessarily correct either. Sometimes you want to run it in memory. Sometimes if you want to use the compiler's knowledge to, to do refactoring of your code, you don't want an assembly produced. You want, you want access to the parse trees and the type and the binding information that the compiler has, right? Hmm. So, so the challenge for us is, is, in a sense, to do away with this black box view of the compiler and open up the compiler and make it more of an API uh, where you can, you, can, you can just call the compiler, if you will, and say, here's, here's a snippet of code. Wow. Here's my, here's my context. Please compile it and give me an expression tree or give me some code that I can run right now, depending, you know, or, 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 or let me ask questions about this piece of code here. What did this variable bind to and so forth so I can do a refactoring, right? So code that writes code sounds very Isaac Asimov. Well, it's, it's, it, it certainly, it, it gets you into, you know, it sets you up much better for, for metaprogramming. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited about it. And if you examine what, what, like the entire success of Ruby and Ruby on Rails is due to the language's metaprogramming capabilities. Yeah. It's this hmm. notion that the program writes itself as it runs, right? Um, hmm. and, and that gives you, you know, a, an order of magnitude more succinctness in your coding experience because you can just say, you know, uh, has many uh, orders and belongs to customer or, or whatever, and poof, the program, as it runs, injects the whole pattern for for one to many and one to one relationship into your into your class, right? And that is the truly mind blowing portion of that interview. Which is why we called the show "Anders Heilsberg Blows Our Minds." I mean, when you think about compiler services, uh, you don't necessarily go. Your brain doesn't necessarily leap to the end result, which is a better programming experience, right? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to think that Anders is always thinking about that. Like he is, wait, I'm, I wonder what's in his head for six, you know, because you know there's something in there. Yeah. Well, speaking of six. Speaking of six, yeah, 601 is coming up. We're, we're going to do another hundred shows, I, at least another hundred shows. Somehow. Somehow. Some way. Well, I think we should do these recap shows every hundred shows till we hit 1,000. I like it. And then 1,000, I think we're going to have to do something over the top. I think maybe we'll have to uh, have a party or something. Something like that. I don't know. At a conference. Time to start thinking now. We have a little time. Yeah. What are we going to do for show 1,000? So maybe we should have like uh, people send in their ideas and where we can have a party where we could fly some rock stars to and uh, mingle with them. And And have some fun. Have some fun. Hey, you know what? We take email. We send out mugs. Don at rocksoffranklins.net. That's right. And uh, Carl? Yeah? Congratulations, man. 600 shows. Congratulations to you. Thank you, listeners. And as always, make sure you support our sponsors. They, uh, they allow us to do what we do. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, 
post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a